Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, as we read verses 7 through 15. Hear now the word of God. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need your spirit. For without you and the Father sending him to open our eyes, we will be blind to your word today. Without your spirit, we will be closed off and unwilling to be corrected and changed. So give us tender hearts and change us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Don't answer this question because it's rhetorical, and I don't know if the literal answer is, is correct, <laughs> but is there a word that's more overused today than the word need? Again, maybe there literally is a word that's more overused, but I think if I look at my own self and my own life and the way I speak about myself, I think it's probably true that I overuse and misuse the word need. Uh, we go about our day, we say that, that we have things that we say that we need. Just this morning, I got up and as I was walking down the stairs, I said to myself, I need coffee. I need coffee. Probably not true. Um, I, I know it's not true because while I was at General Assembly, I was at a hotel that did not have continental breakfast and I was unwilling to drink the swill that came from the coffee maker in my room that surely had been sitting there for nine months untouched. And so I just went without coffee. Um, so I know I don't need coffee. I found that out the hard way, but I, I did find it out. Um, we use the word need all the time, really, for what our wants, right? Um, often, uh, we, we, I think the reason we do it is because we have forgotten that we have any real needs, all right, when was the last time I said, I need water, or I need bread, or I need oxygen, right? Uh, I need a bed to sleep in. How often do we say those things? Um, I don't remember saying those things. Those are needs, I think, but we don't talk about them anymore because God is so gracious, God is so kind, he gives us above and beyond what our needs are that after a while our wants sometimes start to look like needs, especially if we're not very thoughtful about it. Well, Jesus is teaching us to pray today, and, and he's already talked to us about how to pray. He's talked to us about our posture of prayer. He's talked to us about our own 
heart attitude when it comes to prayer, about the reason we do it, what motivates us, what drives us, why would we pray? And last week he talked about praying in a way that we don't blow the trumpet, right? So that we don't wave our hands and look for people to pat us on the back and how we give and how we pray and how we care about others and how we fast. Well, today he's showing us not necessarily how to pray, but he's showing us what we should pray. And you'll notice that Jesus is teaching us to pray and he keeps it very basic, right? He doesn't get complicated. Um, You know, as I was looking at the Lord's Prayer You may be very shocked to find this out. I saw three categories of things Jesus tells us to pray for. Just three. Not four, not two, three. It just always works out that way. Um, Jesus tells us first this morning, he says that we need to know the holy God. It's the first thing he wants us to know. And then second, we need to know provision. And then third, we need to know forgiveness. If you really look at the Lord's Prayer, you break it down. This is really the categories, I think, that that Jesus is telling us what our needs are. And isn't it interesting, you know, we are maybe self-deceived about what our needs are. We maybe are confused about what our needs and our wants are. And, And yet Jesus really breaks it down for us. What are the priorities that we ought to have in this life? What are the things that he thinks that we need? Um. What an opinion worth listening to, right? So this morning, let's look at those three categories and ask God to teach us what it is that we really need. Um, First, Jesus says we need to know the holy God. Um, he, He says to pray like this. He says, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Perhaps the greatest need that we all have is to know what life is about and and who life is about and to have the most basic questions straight. Now, our world is is in a tailspin, and part of the reason why certainly the modern society we live in is in a tailspin is because it has forgotten the creator and it's exalted the creature, right? And when you make the creature the center of things, well, we're very finicky beings, right? (laughs) Our desires change from one day to the next. Our, our sense of need changes from one day to the next. We get very self-obsessed. We can get wrapped up in ourselves. And if we make creatures the center of the universe, you're going to find a world, you'll find a society that's very much in a tailspin and deeply confused about itself. Even as we look at ourselves and become obsessed with ourselves, the paradox is we lose ourselves. Because we thought we were going to find the answer within ourselves. And that still is the mantra of the day. That still is the message that the world says, let's dig our heels in and let's see if we can find purpose in ourselves. We know it hasn't worked yet, but what if we tried it some more? And that's what we're doing, right? We're living through a moment like that where we're going to see it through to the end, right? What does it look like to make us ultimate? We're in the middle of finding that out. Now, here's the thing. Maybe we can't solve society's problems here, but I know one thing, that we each came in here with our own needs when it came to our own prayer lives. And if we start our prayers by focusing on us and focusing on who we are and on what we want, we will be repeating the same errors that we see in the world around us. We will start self-centeredly, and we will be lost as a person and lost in our prayers. Jesus says, don't do that. He says, first, start off focused on the Lord. He says, he says, as you begin to pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And the reason he says that we should pray like this is because God comes first. 
He comes first in life. He comes first in prayer. He is the one that our life is all about. Knowing him comes first. Setting him apart as holy in our own heart comes first. That's how he says, if you want to have a prayer, if you want to have a prayer life that's healthy, that looks like what God knows you need, begin with him, not with you. Right? Hallowing his name, what does it do? It gives us a posture in prayer, right? He's holy, right? When we, when we come to him, we don't come to him with our, with our chin up and our, our chest out, holding our, our list of demands. Lord, look at all the things that I want this week. Or we don't come to him simply fulfilling a formality, right? Because we come to him because we've hallowed him, his name. We know we're talking to the holy God. Right? Jesus, Jesus says, remember who you're talking to when you pray. You are not talking to some peer. You're not talking to some employee that you have authority over. You are talking to the holy God. As a parent, I've had some evenings where I was tired and used my exhaustion as an excuse to pray in a way that I know, in retrospect, was not holy. Right, you know the, the the kids are being squirrely. Um, they're having a, a hard time sitting still. You tell them a few times to be quiet, and I know maybe this is just me. You say, "Be quiet now. We're praying." I know I'm the only parent. This is just confession time for me. And then what do you do? You blast through a thirty second prayer, and you say, "Off to bed." You guys are driving me crazy tonight. And. Uh, it's like such flippancy in your prayers, right? Maybe you, maybe you understand why you did it, but you also need to be willing to point the finger at yourself and saying, oftentimes when I pray, I don't pray, hallowed be your name. All right, I'm not saying we have to use the exact phrase, hallowed be your name, but are we hallowing his name when we pray? Are we thinking about who it is that we're actually talking to? Um, it's possible for us to be so flippant and familiar that we actually treat God as if he's unholy. Uh, I've done it, and maybe you have too, and Jesus wants us to pray remembering that this is God that we're talking to. And praying hallowed be your name is not just a phrase. It's not just a phrase you're supposed to say aloud during prayer. It's bigger than that. It's, it's to ask God to make our life about him and about his, his glory. Right? To, to, to make those things the purpose why we live and why we breathe and why we eat and why we pray and why we have these little ones and send them off to bed in the first place. Right? This is a prayer that says, what I need is to know you, Lord, and what I need is to love your holiness, and what I need is to, to care about your glory. Lord, insofar as that's not me, change my heart. Make me love you. And make me reference you, right? This is, he's talking about a life orientation here. When you say, hallowed be your name, he's telling us to be very different from the rest of the world because the world does not say, hallowed be your name. Um, uh, St. Augustine has a letter that he wrote to a member of his church. His member of his church asked him, how can I pray? How am I supposed to pray? And Augustine begins by saying, we need to say, hallowed be your name. And he says, as we do that, we're coming to God with a weighty sense that apart from Christ, our name is unholy. 
and we are desolate, and we are disordered, and we are sinners coming before the one who is the opposite of all of that. So when we say, hallowed be your name, in a sense, we're also confessing, unhallowed is my name. I'm coming to the one whose name is holy. The one whose name is unholy is coming to the one who's holy. So there's, a, there's an element of confession here in saying, hallowed be your name, because when we see how bright God is, we see how dark we are. Sorry, we're, we're sinners. So, so we're coming before God like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. Here he is. He, he sees God. He sees the holiness of God. He sees the unholiness of himself. And he, he sees the filthiness of his, of his own mouth. And he throws himself down and he curses himself. And in a sense, when Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name, he's saying, go before God like that. Have you become so overly familiar with God that you have forgotten to hallow his name? Have you neglected him? Now, there's a balance that Jesus brings here. For some people, the problem is not an over-familiarity. The problem is not an excessive lightness. There are many Christians for whom it's actually the opposite, where we're afraid of God, where we're, we're intimidated of God. We're, we're afraid to pray to him at all. And it's because we say we take God's holiness so seriously And Jesus has something to say to those people as well, because he knows that there may be people even in that crowd who are terrified to even speak the name of God. The thought of even calling him anything other than God is so foreign. And Jesus balances that. How does he do it? He balances it by addressing him as he says, address him as our father. He says, address God as our father. So yes, he's holy, but for the Christian He is our father, right? He is not our peer, but he's our father, right? Uh, I've had times, maybe, perhaps, with my own children where I've had to say, talk to me like I am your father, not a classmate. Talk to me like I'm your father, not a classmate. But you know what else? They talk to me as though, they don't talk to me as though I'm a stranger either, right? There is something about a father that demands a certain level of acknowledgement. He's our father. He's not our peer. So so even as we remember that he's holy, even as we remember he's set apart, that he's different from us, that he's glorious, that he's exalted, he's also inviting us to come with familiarity and intimacy. So there's there's a balance here. And so don't fall off the one side where you say, I'm afraid of God. And don't fall off the other side where you say, who really cares who he is? He's my buddy. Neither of those two things is accurate. Those are the opposites of each other. It's not a contradiction for God to be holy and to be our father. Think about this. Holy doesn't mean distant. Holy doesn't mean intimidating. Holy doesn't mean angry. Holy doesn't mean unapproachable. Jesus says you can call him father. Don't just call him God. He's not just a being, but he is your father, right? Do you ever think about what the grace there is in just that name and being able to call him that. Um, that we get to call him by this intimate, sweet, familial term, right? If, if we're too terrified to speak his name, if we're too, too terrified even to pray or even to come to him, we need to have this renewed understanding that all of this is grace and that it's not that he reluctantly lets us call him father. It's that he commands us to call him father. That's how much he wants us to know him as father. 
this is kindness extended to us, that we get to lay our, our burdens at his feet, that we get to speak to him, that we get to have transformed lives because we're close to him, because we're near to him. Now, even as he calls us to know him and to know his holiness, he also calls us to yearn for the world to see and to know that same holiness. You see, there's not this self-centeredness in this, in this passage. He, he opens it and he tells us to pray and he tells us that we should have a heart's yearning for more than just us to experience God and just us to know his grace. He tells us, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I could simplify this, First of all, Jesus is saying, prayer has, has begun and you still haven't started praying about yourself. That's a good thing. <laughs> He's saying you're praying about God, you're praying about others, and you're not leading off with you and your list. So Jesus says, remember God, yearn for him to come, yearn for him to change you, yearn for him to change the world, yearn for him to make his, his moral will a reality in the here and now. Don't just pray for escape. Pray, pray to be changed. Think bigger than just you. How does the kingdom come? You know, he says, pray your kingdom come. I found something really helpful in, in Calvin. He says there are two ways that God's kingdom comes. He says, through the spirit who corrects our desires and through the word which shapes our thoughts. He says, through the spirit who changes our desires and the word which shapes our thoughts. He says, these are the two avenues through which God's kingdom comes. He says, the spirit shapes our desires, the word shapes our thoughts, and in this way, the kingdom comes. So see, this is a prayer that God would not just cause us to see him, but it's a prayer that God would cause us to live for him. We should pray for heart change. We should also pray for life change, right? Not just to have an emotional, spiritual transformation, but we should be praying for a life transformation that we can actually see and make it evident that God's kingdom is at work in us. It's an externally facing prayer, right? Because we're praying for others to be changed by his spirit, and we're praying for others to be changed by his word. Do you pray for the world? Jesus says we should. Or are you guilty of, of coming into prayer and thinking about yourself and focusing on yourself and talking about yourself, and digging deep into yourself. What do I really want? What do I really need? And we start making prayer about us. Is that something that you're guilty of? Jesus knows what you need most, and so he begins by pointing our prayer in the right direction, pushing us to know the holy God first. Now, second, Jesus says we need to know provision Eventually, Jesus does get to the place where he encourages us to pray for ourselves. But let's just appreciate how basic it is. He said we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. And bread's about as basic as you get when it comes to food that keeps you alive, right? He, um, uh, and that's because daily bread is a metaphor for necessities. It's definitely not a word for the luxuries of life. Um, God is meant to be our true food. God is meant to be our true need. Um, the stuff that we put in our mouths is supposed to play second fiddle. Um, that's why this prayer isn't first. He doesn't lead off the prayer by saying, Lord, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, oh, yeah, and your father and your holy. <laughs> He doesn't do that. Now, we may charge into our prayers exactly like that. How upside down does that feel? But it's very natural to us. There's another place where Jesus says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. 
If you have to pick your food, Jesus says you should pick spiritual food every time. Jesus wants us to have hearts that don't love worldly riches, but that live for God and live for his riches. But he also says that we need to eat if we're going to keep living for him. He doesn't want to awaken our hearts to being greedy. So he tells us, pray for your necessities, not for your luxuries. He says, pray for your necessities, not for your luxuries. Um, Don't pray for your daily Birkin. Pray for your daily bread, right? (laughs) Um, There's a balance here, right? Pray for what we need so that we can keep living for him. We do need things to put inside of our mouths so that we can continue to do the things that really matter. Um, Proverbs 30, verse 8, seems to be an excellent commentary on what Jesus is saying. Very simple proverb says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Uh, St. Augustine has a little bit that he adds to this. I love what Augustine says. He says, Give me neither... neither, Let me try it one more time. He says, Give me neither poverty, lest I resent you, nor riches, lest I forget you. Give me neither poverty, lest I resent you, or riches, lest I forget you. Um, The two balances, right? There's two directions. And and he says, give me neither. Um, here's, Here's the thing. Because we're satisfied with God, we know that our life can take all sorts of turns. We can experience all sorts of trials, deprivations, losses. But the idea here and the way that God has designed our spiritual lives to be is that we won't lose the thing that's our true food, and that's knowing God. That's the plan. Now, Luther makes a comment about this prayer, and I think it's a helpful, a helpful comment. I talked to you already about the fact that when he says, um, your kingdom come, Jesus is telling us that we should have a prayer life that's not just focused on ourselves. And Luther points this out. He says, you know, when you pray for God to give you your daily bread, you're not just praying about yourself. He says there is a social dimension to praying for your daily bread. Because he says, when you pray for your daily bread, Luther, Luther says, you're praying for a prosperous and stable social order. You're praying for more than just, gee, I don't care how it happens, get this bread into my mouth. Because look, he says, there's no daily bread if there's no one to farm the bread. He says, there's no daily bread if there's no one to run the mill to make the wheat and bake the bread. He says, there's no daily bread if there's no stable economy to make the bread affordable for us. He says, and we know a thing or two about bread being affordable, right? There's no daily bread if no one has the funds to purchase bread for themselves or others. Uh, I recently finished a book called Red Famine by Ann Applebaum. And in this book, Red Famine, Ann Applebaum tells the story of how Joseph Stalin intentionally and systematically caused a nationwide famine in Ukraine. And he did it as a way of crushing the farmers and subjugating them to the Soviet government. Um, So what happened was the Soviet government created a monopoly so that they were the only ones that farmers were allowed to sell grain to. If you sold grain to anyone who wasn't a government entity, then you could be severely punished. Um, And so here's what the government did. They said, look, we're the only one that you can sell your grain to. And they set the price of grain so low that the, the farmers could barely afford to survive. Over time, we're talking about a number of years, eventually they couldn't afford grain to even plant a new crop. They lost their grain seed. 
eventually they didn't even have enough grain to feed themselves or their own family. And what they did have, they tried to hide so they could even so they could survive. Well, eventually the government got really, really wise to this. They'd bury their wheat down in the ground and they would come around with long poles and they would poke the ground and they would look for grain to be stored underground. And if they found it, they would take it, confiscate it, and leave the people with nothing. Um, eventually the people in the Ukraine were starving to death. Their bodies were lying in the streets. No one had strength enough to bury these poor people or dig a grave. And so people were left to die in the open air. They even made it illegal for people to leave the Ukraine. You couldn't even leave the country. And so millions in the Soviet Union starved to death. Nearly everyone was malnourished in the nation of Ukraine. This was intentional. This was on purpose. It was one of the great evils of the Soviets that Stalin intentionally did this. Luther says that those in power should be warned by this petition of the Lord's Prayer. He says, let them beware of the intercession of the church. Luther's like, the government should be afraid of a people who pray the Lord's Prayer. He says, let them beware of the intercession of the church and let them take care that this petition of the Lord's Prayer does not turn against them. A people who pray, give us this day our daily bread, is praying a prayer that implicitly overthrows such wicked leadership. Implicitly. The seventh commandment teaches not only that we shouldn't steal, but that we should care about the outward estate of other people. Jesus is embracing that in this prayer. We should care that our neighbor's needs are met as well, not just ours. And this prayer is our way of remembering that this is a need that God can provide and that God does provide. Every breath you take and every bite you eat is a gift from God and it is an answer to this passage in the Lord's Prayer. Third this morning, Jesus says that we need to know forgiveness. It's interesting. He's giving a list of needs. And if you were giving your list of needs, I suspect many of us would neglect this. We would not think to include forgiveness in our list of needs. Uh, we, we, need to, we need God to give us grace so that we can know incoming forgiveness, he says, and outgoing forgiveness. We need to know forgiveness in more than just one dimension. As Jesus is telling us, forgiveness goes in both directions. Look how he says it. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So first Jesus is saying that we should pray to receive God's forgiveness, right? That God would actually forgive us. He's saying, he's saying that is fundamental, right? I I don't think it's over, overstating things for me to remind you that this is maybe the most monumentous, monumental and outrageous prayer that Jesus tells sinners like us to pray. This is outrageous, right? Because if you've, if you've grown used to the idea of forgiveness, if you've been in the church long enough, you know that that's, that's what the Christian church is about. At least I hope that's what your impression of the church, Christian church is. Then you get used to the idea of forgiveness, and if that's you and you've become a nerd to it, if it's just become something that you always know and take for granted, it's time to take a step back and think of what this really is. Amen. This is the holy God of the universe. He's pure. He's perfect in all his ways. He's a perfect judge. You and I violate his law all the time in our hearts and in our words and in our actions. 
for a perfect judge to let us go free is an outrage to justice. It is. Because in order for us to go free, we desperately need something that we can't deserve for ourselves. We can't merit for ourselves. It's something that we should, we should be afraid to even think about asking for it. Forgiveness. How dare we ask for it? And that's why Jesus has to tell us to pray for it. He says, tell God, forgive me my debts. Forgive us our debts. Because here's the thing. He uses this language of debt to describe what happens when we sin. You sin, a debt is created. A debt that has to be forgiven because we can't pay it. He doesn't say, pray that God would strengthen you to pay your debts. Notice it, that's not how he talks. He doesn't say, pray that God would strengthen you to pay your debts. He says, pray that God would forgive you your debts. That debt, right, that, that load that all of our sin creates, we can't destroy it, we can't eliminate it, we can't write it off, we can't make it go away, we can't pay it, because the debt is too big. Right? Our sin is too much, and so the question is, What do we need? Jesus tells us. We need to have God forgive it. Have you been forgiven? Has your your debt been dealt with by God? I'm not asking if you've gone to church. I'm not asking you if you grew up in the church. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not asking you any of those things. I'm asking you whether or not you've been forgiven. Well, listen, Scripture is really clear that at the same time that God takes sin deadly seriously, he is also eager and ready, and he calls you to come to him. He says, come to me, call me Father, and ask me for forgiveness, right? He's, he's not reluctant to forgive. He is quick and ready and eager to forgive because who, of who his son is. And the only way to know that forgiveness is to look to Jesus and confess your sin And ask him to be your substitute. Tell him, I have been bad. And left to myself, I will keep being bad. I'll keep violating your law. I need something that I can't provide for myself. And so he tells us, receive and rest in him and and enjoy the life that he gives. Stop trying to, to be strong, to merit forgiveness. You're not going to do it. That's why he tells you to ask God to forgive you, not to make you strong to earn forgiveness. You'll never be strong enough. Stop attempting the impossible task of paying your own debt and receive Jesus as your debt bearer instead. Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our debts. Second, he doesn't just say that we need forgiveness from from him, but he also says we need to pray that we are people who are dispensing forgiveness. Right? He says you pray, Lord, forgiving our sins, but also make us forgive our sins, but also make us forgiving. Right? May we never think that we are somehow worthy of forgiveness, and yet the other people in our life are not. It's so easy to do it. It's so easy to do it. We make exceptions for ourselves. We make excuses for ourselves. We write our own sin off as easy and quickly as possible. We have explanations for everything we've ever done. And then the person who sins against us, I can't believe they did that. Right? Jesus knows us so well. He knows how willing we are to be forgiven. We're very quick to be forgiven. We would love to be forgiven. It feels great to be forgiven. It feels great to walk free. It stands great to no longer stand guilty. But there is a temptation 
for us not to be the forgiving types. Uh, the temptation is there for us to hold on to grudges, to remember when others sins against us, to, to chew on it, to mull it over, to, to, to grip onto the sins of others with all we have so that we can have something against them that we can have for our own, that we can always feel a little superior to everybody else, to refuse to let them go. And Jesus knows that we are like this. He knows that we are like this. That's why he says we've got to make it a matter of prayer that we naturally gravitate towards unforgiveness. He says, pray about your unforgiveness. He says, pray that you would be forgiving. Why? Because you're naturally not. We pray for the things that we can't do and that we don't do. We don't pray for the things that we just naturally love and naturally do and that we can already do for ourselves. He says the fact that you are supposed to pray that you would forgive other people's sins is a sign that you're not going to naturally want to do that. Pray that God would release you. Pray that God would overcome your own weaknesses and your own sinful tendency not to release the debt of others. You know, Jesus draws these two practices of forgiving and being, being forgiven very close together, doesn't he? They're right there, hand in hand with each other, right? It, it's not just that we're supposed to pray for forgiveness and we're supposed to be forgiving. It's harder than that. He says, if you're not the type to forgive, then you're not the type of person who's been forgiven. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people walk with a sense of, of who they are and what they've received. Listen to Martin Luther talk about this part of Jesus' prayer. He says, he says, if anyone insists on his own goodness and despises others, let him look into himself when this petition confronts him. He will find that he is no better than others and that in the presence of God, everyone must duck his head and come into the joy of forgiveness only through the low door of humility. You still hold on to grudges. You still find yourself unwilling to forgive, but you still expect that God's going to forgive you. Calvin reminds us there's a warning here. He basically says that if we hold on to hatred towards others, if we plot revenge against those who've hurt us, if we think we're better than them, he says, by this prayer, we entreat God not to forgive our sins. This prayer will become a curse to any Christian who will not forgive. May that not be true of us. Jesus says, pray that God would forgive and that you would forgive. How dare us think that God has to let go of our sin and we're holier than him so that we have to hold on to it. Jesus also tells us to pray that God would help us to live out that forgiveness. Right? At the end of the prayer, what does Jesus do? He tells us to pray Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? In essence, he's, he's telling us to pray that the forgiveness we know in him would actually show up in our life. That it, it would actually show up in the things that we do and the things that we say. I've, I've mentioned this before. John Owen points out the only sin that can be defeated is forgiven sin. The only sin that can be defeated is forgiven sin. Jesus is telling us, pray that the forgiveness we experience and dispense would not just be the idea of sin, but a present reality that goes beyond the abstract. He says, 
pray, lead us not into temptation, right? Don't just forgive us, protect us from sinning in the first place. Protect our hearts from loving these things that we're asking you to forgive us for. When Augustine talks about this passage, he's careful to make this distinction between being tempted and being led into temptation. There's a difference here, right? Jesus isn't telling us to pray that temptation never comes our way. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, pray that you would never be tempted. That is emphatically not what he says. He is telling us to pray that God give us grace not to consider, not to entertain, not to mull over temptation. It's one thing to know that you could sin. It's another thing for us to like the thought of sinning. It's one thing for us to... to to be presented with a possibility of sin, but it's another thing to play around with the thought, to to chew on it, to think about it for a while. Jesus says that's entering into temptation. Pray that God would protect you from entering into temptation. That when temptation comes your way, that that you would see it, that you wouldn't enter into it. That God would strengthen you to love him more and even find the idea of sin to be repulsive when you see it in your own heart, when you see it rising up in your thoughts. By giving you this prayer to pray, Jesus is rooting for you. Jesus wants more than just a passive escape. Jesus loves you. Jesus is telling you what you need here. He says, pray that God, by his grace, would keep you from entering into temptation. Do you pray this prayer? I don't mean have you memorized the Lord's Prayer. I think many of us, most of us, a lot of us have. I don't mean to ask if you repeat it on a regular basis. What I mean is have you internalized the life of prayer that Jesus is teaching here? For that reason, I think that this is a prayer worth memorizing. This is a good prayer to memorize. When Martin Luther was teaching his barber to pray, he has a whole book on prayer that he wrote for his barber. His barber said, Luther, teach me how to pray. And Luther said, well, he said, memorize the Lord's prayer and then go through it line by line and think about what it means and then pray about those things. So if you have the Lord's prayer memorized, there's a sense in which you have the sort of prayers that Jesus wants you to pray ready at hand. He's not telling you that if you just repeat every line, then you've prayed the Lord's prayer. But Jesus is teaching us that if you know this prayer, if you know it by heart, if you chew on it, if you think about it, if you meditate upon it, then you have a life of prayer here ready in your pocket in a little phrase that most of us have memorized. You may know this prayer, but do you live this prayer? You may have it memorized, but do you have the priorities of Jesus? Do you ask him for all the ways that you need his help? Do you live by the grace that this prayer presupposes? You know, even Jesus has told us to pray. Everything Jesus has told us to pray for here is a need. If you think about what a flower needs in order to survive, right? You need water, you need sun, you need soil. Well, guess what? We are a lot like the flower. We have needs as well. We need to know God. We need to know our daily bread. We need to know forgiveness, right? These are needs. These are needs. And without these needs taken care of, we're going to wither. Jesus knows what your priorities in life are. They are so much simpler than we make them out to be. They're needs that ultimately only God, the creator, and your father can give. Everything here comes from God and not from us. That's why it's a matter of prayer and not action. Will you listen to Jesus today? Will you learn to look to God in Christ for everything that you need? 
expressed through these words of prayer. Let's, let's do that right now. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, when your son taught us to pray, he was sharing with us a great gift. Would you help us not to squander that gift? Would you cause us not to leave the gift of prayer unused and untapped? Would you direct our hearts to live with dependence, to live with humility, and with an eagerness to put these things into practice? We ask these things in Jesus' name.